hope we can learn from all these lessons and many more out there that we're human beings. We're all human beings. And we can figure out a way to work together for law enforcement to protect the community and not have these terrible tragedies happen. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler and former New York City prosecutor. And with me today is no one. Francie actually wishes she could be here, but she's out of town. Actually, to tell you the truth, she's probably happy, very happy, not to be here because she's taking some very well-deserved time off with her husband. I hope that she's out there listening to me speak to you because, well, I just don't want to give her all this time off. I mean, why should she get to relax without having to hear my wonderful voice? Just joking. Obviously, hopefully Francie is having a great time. And as soon as she comes back, we'll be back on the air together. I am here today to talk to you about a worst case scenario. Something that's been going on that is really bothering me, and I think it's a good time to speak up about it. Uh, You know, I love law enforcement and the justice system, and I spent my career in law enforcement and justice, first as a prosecutor, then as an FBI agent for over 25 years in total. But today I'm torn. I am very torn because as much as I love law enforcement and the justice system, I think parts of it are broken. And there are issues that we need to talk about. I'm different. I'm just 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 different. I'
I don't do any fighting. Other units that are not here. Why you were you attacking me? I don't move the huggins. I don't even kill flies. I don't eat beef. I I'm not a vegetarian. I don't judge people. No, I mean that was the voice of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old massage therapist who lost his life in August of 2019. Why? And why are there so many other names like his on the list of people who've also lost their lives in police encounters? Rayshard Brooks was 27 years old. John Crawford was 22 years old, and Tamir Rice was 12 years old. Two of the things that they shared in common were that they were all black males, and they were all subject to police encounters that were begun by 911 calls. And I believe this points out a number of fundamental issues that I'd like to address today. One, when police officers order lawful citizens to do anything, it's a stressful situation for the citizen, especially if the police officers pull their weapons out. Another issue, if someone calls 911, there is little or no attempt to verify the legitimacy of the complaint made over the phone. And the person taking that complaint is typically an operator. In some places, there are former officers who become 911 operators, but in many cases, they're operators. And yet, the information they take causes police officers to respond sometimes with deadly physical force. So the third issue is, is there a responsibility on the part of law enforcement officers to observe before they interact with someone who is the subject or possibly the subject of a 911 call? So let's talk about the case of Elijah McLean. There was a 911 call that came in. A young man said that he's walking on the street and Another gentleman passed him who was wearing a mask. And he says that it was a full-on mask that he had on. And while he walked by, the other guy that he's calling about put his hands up and does all these signs, he said. And then he says he was waving his arms. And he adds this. He could be a good person or bad I don't know. The operator asks him to describe him. He said he was a black male, but he couldn't tell how old he was because of the face mask. She asks if it was a ski mask, and he says yes. It was actually an open face ski mask where that was covering just over his top lip and up above his brow. So from his brow down to the bottom of his nose was actually open. The operator asks whether there were any weapons displayed or mentioned. And the caller said no. She also asks if he, 
the caller or anyone else was in danger, and he said no. And she said she's going to send police officers to the scene to try to locate this guy. There are body cam videos available where you can see and hear this incident in full. There's some talking over. It's pretty clear what happened. Police officer rolls up in his cruiser and he sees... Elijah McLean walking towards his vehicle on the sidewalk with a plastic shopping bag in his hand. He's got a ski mask on and it's open the way I described. In other words, it doesn't just allow you to see his individual eyes. It's open so that his forehead, part of his forehead, his brow, his eyes, and his nose are all visible. And the officer, as he's opening his door, yells out, stop. And Elijah keeps walking, and he says, stop. And he says, stop again. And Elijah keeps walking, and the officer's getting out of his car, and he says, stop, as he's approaching Elijah. And Elijah says, I have a right to go where I'm going. And the officer immediately says, I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. That is how the caller described Elijah when he called 911. But what qualifications does that person have to decide that somebody else is acting, quote, suspicious? And why does the officer immediately take that description from an unknown person and use that as the justification for physically stopping Elijah? as opposed to simply observing Elijah and seeing if, in fact, there was an issue. Because, in fact, that 911 call did not, in any way, shape, or form, under anybody's definition of what a crime is, state that a crime was being committed. There was nothing in that call, nothing, that could be interpreted as a crime. Now... What could be interpreted is that maybe there was someone who was emotionally disturbed walking on the streets. But if that is the case, police officers should not be responding as if there is someone who is a dangerous criminal on the streets. And an officer, rather than demanding someone stop on the sidewalk when they are an average citizen walking home, they should have engaged him and asked him a question. What are you doing? Where are you going? Anything like that. And they could have, before that, observed his behavior. These officers are trained to see and determine what suspicious activity is, but the average citizen is not. And so what ends up happening in this case is that Elijah is actually incredibly introverted. He tells the officers that. He asks them to respect his space as they crowd him and start patting him down. They, in fact, as far as I can tell, with the information that's out there, had no reasonable suspicion that he committed a crime. They had no right to stop and frisk him. They had no right to stop him. They had every right to follow up and to observe him 
which they definitely could have done from the safety of their own police cars. He says, I live right over there. And in that just terribly tragic recording that we heard, he's pleading for his life. He says he can't breathe. I mean, we've heard that all too many times. And the officers then apply a carotid hold, a chokehold, to try to control him. The officer, before they get there, though, as he's standing there, as Elijah's standing there, being confronted by these two officers, one in front of him, one behind him, the officer says, stop tensing up, stop tensing up. If you keep tensing up, this is going to change. The problem is that when a police officer approaches a citizen and demands they stop and then puts his hand on that citizen, somebody doing nothing wrong, somebody doing exactly what they are allowed to do in our society, even if they have a ski mask on and you don't think ski masks are appropriate, you can ask them questions. You have the right to ask, if you're a police officer, a question of a citizen, but that citizen does have a right to refuse to answer it. It's this aggression, this immediate aggression, that appears to have escalated this situation to the point where these officers tackle Elijah to the ground, use a chokehold to restrain him because he's very uncooperative, because he is very put upon by these officers and their reaction to him and their actions with him, and he is not complying. But the police officers aren't taken into account at all that their presence and their aggression can cause an involuntary reaction on the part of a citizen. Fear, anxiety, and distress are all natural reactions of being confronted in that way. And they can have real physical ramifications. So what happens next is they use a chokehold on him. And then they have an EMT come and administer a shot of ketamine to calm him down. And he has a heart attack and dies on his way to the hospital. Why? Why did that happen? We can say the same thing for Rayshard Brooks. Those officers that responded after a 911 call saying that a man was asleep in his car in a drive-thru at a fast food restaurant. The police officers were actually very polite and they approached him. They got him out of the car. They tested him, a field sobriety test. He was showing very clear symptoms of being impaired. He admitted to having a couple of drinks and the officers were very polite to him. In return, he was very polite to them. The interactions went very well, and the officer spent a fair amount of time actually trying to make a better case against him for driving while intoxicated. He asked him questions about how much he had to drink and whether he drove to that place and so forth. And one of the things Richard was saying is that his sister lives just a couple blocks away, and he's just going to go over there. And what could have happened, yes, what the officers did at that point making a case, and then deciding that they were going to arrest him on the spot. That's something that could have been avoided. They know this man is impaired. They know this man has been 
cooperative. He's been cordial to them. He's been answering their questions, sometimes slightly evasively. But none of that means that he has to be arrested at this moment. The police officers definitely have discretion. If he lived two blocks away, they could have said, here, give me your car keys. Get in the back of the squad car. We'll drive you to your sister's house. And tomorrow morning, you can come pick up your keys. And that's when we're going to book you for driving while intoxicated. They could have done that. They had all the proof they needed. But instead of doing that, the situation changed dramatically when one of the officers stepped to the side and behind Richard, grabbing one of his arms and saying, you're under arrest. Richard, who was apparently impaired, made a bad decision at that point to resist. And why? Likely because he had been interacting with these officers in a very calm, cool, collected, respectful way. And he was shocked that he was going to get arrested. Part of that might have been due to the fact that he may have been impaired and he wasn't functioning as cognitively as he could have. But the other issue is that it's certainly within the officer's discretion to make sure that person, that Rayshard, doesn't drive because that would be dangerous because every police officer is charged with protecting the community. And anybody who's driving impaired threatens the community. I have lost a very close family member due to a murder with a motor vehicle with an impaired driver. So I understand the reason why this is a serious issue. But it is not an issue that requires the immediate arrest of that person, especially if there is a way to prevent him, one, from driving while impaired, and two, disappearing completely because they have his car. And they could have his car keys, and they have his license, and they know where he lives, and they could follow up after. And if they had done that, there would have been no struggle, and there wouldn't have been a police-involved shooting that day. And that whole incident, again, started with a 911 call of what? A man sleeping in his vehicle. Not somebody with a gun, not somebody who was threatening people, somebody sleeping in his vehicle. The police were right to respond because there was a high degree of probability that this person was impaired. And what they should have done was made sure that person could not have done any harm to other people or to himself. But I would suggest that they didn't actually have to arrest him that night because they could have let him walk to his sister's house, or they could have driven him to his sister's house just a couple blocks away. And then there's the case of John Crawford, a 22-year-old black male who was shopping at Walmart, and he picked up a BB gun that looked pretty real, but it was actually from the shelf of the Walmart store he was in. And there was a 911 call. And the caller said, I'm at Walmart, and there's a gentleman walking around with a gun in the store. 
the 911 operator says, has he got it pulled out? And he says, yeah, he's like pointing it at people. Those are very, very important words. He's like pointing it at people. Fortunately, we can actually see the video from inside the Walmart. And you can see John Crawford pick up the gun. You can see him pointing it down at the ground. You can see him putting it up over his shoulder, but you can't ever see him pointing it at people. In fact, there's a mother with her cart, with her two kids, in the same aisle as him, clearly not feeling at all threatened by him. But this caller adds this false lie that actually ends up costing John Crawford his life. Because what happened is, the officers that responded had just been in active shooter training a couple of weeks before, and they came in with submachine guns, expecting someone who had been seen pointing a weapon at customers in the store. They came in with their submachine guns pointing ahead of them and came at a very rapid pace towards John Crawford, who just came around the corner, and it looks like he's scared. And they apparently order him to drop the weapon. And 0.36 seconds after that, they shoot and kill him. 0.36 seconds. One third of a second after the order is given, he's dead. He didn't have time to respond. He may have just simply been afraid of them because they were pointing weapons at him. He was not pointing a weapon at them. But is it the officer's fault or is it the fault of this 911 caller who basically swatted John Crawford? And swatting is something people think is fun, calling up police departments and saying there's a man with a gun at a particular address and it turns out to be a celebrity's address or one of the persons that they don't like, some friend or enemy of theirs. And this anonymous 911 call gets a SWAT team to come out. And that's exactly what happened to John Crawford. These guys came out armed to kill because they thought they were protecting the people in Walmart. But here's the thing. Why would that guy call 911 and say that he was pointing that gun at people? Because he wanted to feel more powerful? Because he wanted to bolster his claim to the 911 operator? I don't know. But it was directly responsible for John Crawford being killed that day. And then let's talk about Tamir Rice. 12-year-old boy who goes to the park and he has a toy gun. Looks very real, but it's a toy gun. And he's playing with it like a toy gun. He's 12 years old, immature. Not a smart thing for someone to do, to have a gun and wave it around and point it around when you're, when you're at a park. But he's 12 and he doesn't understand the severity of his actions. But again, there's a 911 call. And the caller said, there's a guy holding a pistol. You know, it's probably fake, but he's like pointing it at everybody. He then goes on to say, it's probably fake two more times. And the 911 operator sends out the call and the operator does not mention the fact that the person calling 911 actually says three times that the gun is probably fake. 
the police officers, you can see a surveillance video with the police officers driving up, and within two seconds of stopping that car, the officers have exited, and one of the officers has fired fatal shots at Tamir Rice, killing this 12-year-old boy. Again, there was no attempt to observe and to verify, and there was a total lack of communication between the 911 operator and the officers who responded. Again, these officers most likely responded thinking they're going to protect the community, but in fact, there was no actual risk to the community. And the issue was that 911 call. If the operator had told the police officers, the caller has three times said, it's probably a fake gun. If the operator had said that, then Tamir Rice may still be alive today. But he's not. And none of these young men are. And so what I'm asking myself, after spending my career in law enforcement, is how can we prevent this kind of thing from happening anymore? I believe one of the things that needs to be done is instead of the 911 operator taking a report and then making another report to the police officers, editing it in one way or another, the police officers should be patched directly through to the 911 caller so they can ask the questions and get all the information that's available. And if they make that assessment and if they have all the information, in other words, if the police officer asked that 911 caller who saw John Crawford with a BB gun, if he asked him, what do you mean he's like pointing it at people? What do you mean? Is he threatening anybody? When you call in to 911 and say a person has a gun and you're threatened by that person, do you really call him a gentleman? This caller said there's a gentleman with a gun in the store. I think the words that people use are important, incredibly important, especially when they could indicate that there's a life-threatening situation. So I believe that this miscommunication, lack of communication, overcommunication between 911 callers, 911 operators, and police officers who are responding, it's like a game of telephone here. But only this game of telephone has deadly, life-threatening consequences. And to hear Elijah McLean trying to explain that he doesn't even kill flies, to try to let the officers know he's not a violent person as he's being pinned to the ground and choked, it's pitiful. It's so sad. And if police encounters with civilians start already at a confrontation instead of an investigation, an inquiry, an observation, then escalation is almost guaranteed. And there is one case where that didn't happen, where the escalation did not occur. And that's in the case of Terrell Pachi. He's a Providence fireman, police had somebody come up to them when they were doing an investigation, telling them that he was almost robbed, that somebody, the two people got out of a car, 
pulled a gun and a knife and told them to give their money. And the guy that he was with, this complainant, took off and he took off. And he told the police. And he said, and the police asked, where's the other guy? Where's your friend? I don't know. He took off. So there's no corroboration. And this complainant said, I think the red car in front of the fire department, I think that could be them. And the police said, all right, wait here. We'll be back. And they went to check out the red car in front of the fire department. And they'd been told that that this car could contain a gun and a knife and two bad people. But they say that there's no racial profiling here because the official statement said they didn't know who was in the car. If they didn't have a description of the people in the car and they had just talked to the complainant moments earlier, of course they knew that the complainant described the people. Of course they knew that. How could they go and respond without first having gotten information about the alleged offenders? They must have known their race. And either that race that they were told was African-American or it wasn't. But as soon as, they, as the cops got to that car and ordered them to open their doors, immediately they knew two things. One, that this was a male and a female in the car. Did the complainant say that it was a male and a female? They haven't told anybody. They also knew that both the male and the female were African-American immediately. So did the complainant tell them that or not? At this point, the guy in the passenger seat, Fireman Patchy, identified himself as a fireman. He showed the officers his fire department radio and his hat that identified him as a fire department member. One officer was ordering the driver out of the car. He didn't say, driver, get out of the car. He said, get out of the car now. And so Fireman Pachi was actually complying by starting to get out of the car. And the officer on his side said, I didn't tell you to move. Get back in there. So right then and there, his life was at risk because he was following the order of one cop while the other cop was countermanding that order. It was a very dangerous situation. And I know how much it affected him because when Fireman Pachi related this to the media, he was very emotional. But at this point, to the officer's credit, they realized this could not have been the people that this complainant was talking about. And so they holstered their weapons and they apologized. But I don't think that apology actually takes into account the amount of stress and anxiety and fear that having someone point a loaded firearm at you engenders in a human being especially someone who is just a normal citizen, just living their life because even the slightest accident could take their life. The slightest misinterpretation, the slightest wrong movement, and it could be an uncontrollable movement, a nervous movement, because fight or flight is not something everybody can control. Fight or flight is caused by the primitive part of our brain saying this is time to either stand and fight so it sends extra blood and adrenaline coursing through your veins. So what that does is it has your extremities move. It typically makes you lift your hands or move your legs. 
because it's trying to help you survive the moment. And those movements in and of itself could cause you to be shot by a police officer because he thinks you're making a threatening move. And I think that that plays a huge role in Elijah McClain's death because Elijah was very put off by the fact that these officers had stopped him. Not so much necessarily that they were police officers and he didn't want to respect them, but because he is a loner and he described himself as different. I'm just different. That's all. I'm just different. And he's pleading with them and he still loses his life. And I know, I know there are hundreds of thousands of police officers in the United States, close to 500,000. And their jobs are very difficult. I know I lived it, but I didn't live the job of a street officer, someone who every day risks their lives. The most dangerous thing they do is stopping a vehicle. So we have to come up with ways so that officers don't have to risk their lives to stop vehicles. Why aren't we using technology? Why can't we give police officers the technology to immobilize a car so that they can't take it anywhere, so they can't escape? Why can't we give police officers the ability to read somebody's license when they're in a car so that the cop doesn't even have to get out of the vehicle to identify who's in there? Why can't they scan the vehicle and get that information? Why can't we use technology to protect our officers so they don't have to use overwhelming force? We have to be smart about this. We're still using methodologies that were in place 100 years ago or more. And we are still subjecting cops to situations where they could be killed. If we protect the cops from those situations, the stress level of the officers that are behind the badge and behind the gun can be lowered. And there'll be less chance that we lose people like Elijah McClain and Rayshard Brooks and John Crawford and Tamir Rice. People who could still be alive today. And I hope we can learn from all these lessons and many more out there that we're human beings. We're all human beings. And we can figure out a way to work together for law enforcement to protect the community and not have these terrible tragedies happen anymore. Well, I really hope that everybody out there can put their brains together and their hearts together and try to help figure out ways that we can prevent this from happening in the future. Well, this is a very difficult topic and I really appreciate you listening and I hope that you're listening and talking to others around you and this is the most important thing we can do is listen to each other at this point and not divide people, not build walls between people, actually listen to each other and try to figure out ways to improve the situation. So till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wondering. 
You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org.